Mark chapter 15. If you guys have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 15. Good to see you all tonight. Thanks, I appreciate that. Josh did a great job last couple of weeks, didn't he? Yeah, what a blessing. Where is Josh? Where is he? Like he's, he left. He didn't even, he's like, I'm out. Two weeks of that, no more. All right. Um, we're in Mark chapter 15 tonight. We're going to uh, go to verse 32. So let me pray for us and we'll jump into the word. Father, we do just give you the honor and the praise tonight. You are the holy God, the holy one, the only one that's worthy. And we do bring our hallelujah tonight, God. And uh, some of us tonight, it is just all the strength that we can muster just to declare that and to sing it. And Father, we know that in those times, even when we're, we're walking through deep and dark valleys, and um, God, we lean into you and give you praise. You are so pleased. You are so blessed. And tonight, as we consider the cross of your son, we just lean upon your Holy Spirit to teach us and to instruct us. And uh, God, on the one hand, something that's so familiar to us, and, and then on the other hand, so deep, God, we're never going to be able to plumb the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God demonstrated through the love of the sacrifice of Christ. And so, God, we pray tonight that you would show us something new. We pray tonight that you would reveal your love to us in a deeper way. We pray that, uh, God, we would be drawn like a magnet to steel to your heart tonight and that you would supply to us everything that we need as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I want to mention to you tonight as we begin uh, this study, as we're getting to the end of the gospel of Mark, or the gospel according to Mark, because really it's not, it's not Mark's gospel, it's Jesus' gospel, and it's Mark's version. You know, of course we know that most likely he got the majority of his information from Peter. But as we get to the end of this, you know, sometimes, I, I do think sometimes, you know, you read through a gospel account, you kind of get to the end, and you can forget that the end of each gospel account is really the high point, it's the climax, and it's the beginning of something new. And I think um, it's particularly challenging for us sometimes to see that because um, the crucifixion is such a, a heavy topic to deal with. And it's interesting, you know, I think from the first century perspective, you know, Mark was writing to Romans, and Romans would have, of course, when Mark wrote this gospel account, would have been very familiar with crucifixion. Um, in fact, at this point in time, historically, there would have been tens of thousands of people that would have been crucified. And so, you know, from the perspective of someone that's living during that time, you could sincerely think, well, what's the big deal here? You know, I mean, how... How, could, how is this really significant? Because there are thousands of people that have been crucified at this point in time. And of course, crucifixion in the mind of a Roman wasn't something that, um, that they saw like we see today. When we look back on the crucifixion, you know, maybe it's Good Friday and we're looking back and we're rejoicing and we're praising God and we see it as something glorious and we see it as an expression of the nobility of Jesus, you know, that he would actually do something like that for us. But from 
the perspective of a Roman, it was absolutely the opposite. Um, because as we're going to talk about tonight, uh, the crucifixion was the most extreme way of not only um, killing somebody, you know, as a form of capital punishment, but also shaming them and humiliating them. But Jesus' crucifixion was different because it contained a unique power. And it's a unique power that has captured the interests of artists for 2,000 years, has captured the interest of the intellect of the philosopher for 2,000 years. The crucifixion of Jesus has transformed tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of lives. Thank you for that, right? If your life has been transformed by the crucifixion of Jesus, I just would ask you to raise your hand tonight just out of curiosity, all right? So you are living evidence of the power of the crucifixion of Christ. And not only that, but um, I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to say that it's transformed nations as well. It was such an important uh, topic for the Apostle Paul that he focused his message, his preaching, and his ministry on the crucifixion. In fact, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. So you know that Paul, you know, autobiographically, when he was reviewing the planting of the church at Corinth, he said, man, when I was among you, there was nothing else I focused on except the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Why is it so significant? Why is it such a big deal? Why is it for us that the end of the gospel is really the beginning of something new? Well, because the crucifixion is the method and means of God inaugurating a new kingdom. That's what the crucifixion represents. It represents the method and the means of God inaugurating a new kingdom, a new order, a new thing that would last not only for thousands of years, but also deep into eternity in the future. In fact, Paul said this about the crucifixion or the cross of Christ, and I'm just going to uh, say a phrase here that's going to catch you up to what he was talking about. He said the righteous demands of the law that condemned us were set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. And so Paul, in talking about the cross, he said, you know, the law, the handwriting of the law, that it detailed not our success in our standing with God, but in fact our failure because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. His plan for us to be image bearers, but also his righteous expectation that we follow his, his moral demands, all of that was nailed to the cross by Christ. When he died on the cross, he paid in full the demands of the law, demands that we were unable to pay for ourselves. And from a spiritual perspective, all of the principalities and powers and the rulers and authorities, from a spiritual perspective, not, we're not just talking about religious authorities, we're talking about the devil and his host of demonic beings in their uh, wrong thinking that they were triumphing over him in it, he was, in fact, through the cross, triumphing over them in it. And Paul, remember, Paul was someone who was an adversary to the gospel initially, right? I mean, he wasn't one of the original 12 disciples. He wasn't part of Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, he was somebody who was an antagonist to the cross of Christ. He was someone who was willing to put to death 
Christians himself until he experienced the power of the cross personally. And the way he framed it was this, like, like this in Galatians 2.20. He said, um, I, I'll get this in just a second. My mind just totally flatlined on me, okay? <laughs> I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. Now we're talking about a description here of the most brutal form of capital punishment, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I just want you to think about the framework of the cross from the perspective of the Apostle Paul. When he thought about the cross, it wasn't just the brutality and the viciousness, it wasn't just a wrongful death of an innocent individual, a tragic end to an amazing life. For the Apostle Paul, the cross of Christ represented the greatest expression of God's love. And not just in a general sense, but also in a personal sense. And I say all of that tonight because I just want to front load um, our reading this evening, really, because we're going to be, Mark, you you know the way Mark is, right? Mark is the shortest gospel account. It's uh, fast-paced. He loves the word immediately. He's going to walk us through this historical event, um, and he's going to speed walk us through. You know, I mean, Mark doesn't put a lot of effort into deep details, so it's kind of a, a quick glance at this historical event, but I just want to set the framework for us because it is a historical event that changed the world, all right? And he's going to describe to us um, in some detail these events. The Bible says in verse 1, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. Um, Your translation may say, it is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And so Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now remember, last week we were... We were in the court of Caiaphas, and in the court of Caiaphas, there was a um, a hastily gathered religious tribunal. Um, This was um, really an illegal gathering of the Sanhedrin. There were formalities and laws that they were supposed to, and procedures that they were supposed to go through when they would hold a religious tribunal. But of course, they forsook all of those things because they were just so determined to see Jesus' life destroyed. Um, And in that tribunal, you remember, he was mocked, he was spit upon, they put um, a sack over his head, they began to hit him in the face, and they said, prophesy to us now who it is that's striking you. They had many people come and make false accusations against him. None of them were able really to, to stick. I mean, there was no real accusation that could stick because he was absolutely innocent. He was, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God. He was without blemish. He was without spot. Um, he was in this world, but he never, he never sinned. And so, like I said, he fulfilled the law of God for us. And so they had to, you know, develop some false accusations against Jesus. And one false accusation was that 
he was going to, he said himself that he was going to destroy the temple. And of course, you know, that was a false accusation because he never said that. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was talking about his physical body and ultimately his resurrection. But then you remember that the high priest had said to him, tell us plainly, are you the son of God? And he did not deny it. He affirmed it. And so the result was the high priest tore his clothes, you know, and he said, what need do we have of discussing this any further? You can tell yourself he's committed blasphemy, which from the perspective of a Jewish person was a crime worthy of capital punishment. The problem for the Jewish people at the time, at least the religious leaders, was that they did not have the right to execute capital punishment. It had been stripped away by uh, the Romans. And so they were in this predicament. They wanted Jesus dead. They had a religious law that he had violated, but they weren't able, um, because of Roman occupation, they weren't able to execute Jesus themselves. And so they did, from their perspective, what, what was the next best thing, and they brought him before Pilate. They brought him before Pilate as soon as they possibly could. Now, you guys most likely are familiar with Pilate. I'm not gonna get into the um, historical aspects of Pilate. For, for many years, uh, there were people who denied the existence of this biblical figure because there didn't seem to be any extra biblical um, information, archeology span that verified the existence of Pilate until the Pilate stone was discovered um, at Caesarea by the sea in uh, the theater. And if you go with us in March, you'll see um, a replica of that stone right there um, in Caesarea. But he was the governor of Judea from 26 to 36 AD. He was uh, an administrator. He was especially cruel, and um, history tells us Josephus has some things to say about Pilate. He was quick to condemn people to death. He obviously was somebody who was good at what he did because he was sent by Caesar to probably the most difficult place in the Roman Empire um, to manage. Judea was the most difficult province to manage because there were always uprisings. The Jewish people did not like Roman occupation. He was incredibly insensitive to Jews, and you know he's mostly known for this incident that he had with Jesus, which we'll talk about in some detail tonight, um, but his life after the crucifixion of Jesus was very tumultuous. Um, in fact, he lost his favor um, with Rome. He had actually married Caesar's granddaughter, so there was a familial connection that he had with Caesar, but he lost his favor with Rome, and Josephus tells us that ultimately he committed suicide. But as Jesus is before him, it's evident that Pilate, you know, he's heard what the accusations are. We'll talk about the accusations in just a moment. But it's evident that Pilate was unsatisfied with the accusations that were brought before him. And so he wanted to do his own investigation. The Jews could not bring the accusation of blasphemy to Pilate because that was a religious accusation. And, you know, the Romans were never going to crucify somebody for violating uh, you know, one of the religious laws of the Jewish people. And so the, the accusation they brought was sedition against Rome or insurrection against Rome. We're going to see that, you know, as that's the first question that Pilate asked Jesus. Are you, in fact, the king of the Jews? 
Um, this would have been an act of treason because remember in the Roman Empire, there was only one king. Caesar was king. He was considered the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That was the terminology that they used for Caesar at the time. And then when you um, went to make an offering to Caesar, which was required of everybody at least once a year, you had to proclaim him not only as Lord, but you had to proclaim him as king. And so the Jews came and said, hey, he's guilty of insurrection or sedition because he claimed to be Caesar. And then in addition to that, he also has told the people not to um, pay taxes to Caesar. And so Pilate asked the question, are you in fact the king of the Jews? And Jesus's answer is simple and honest and true. It is, as you say, because he was the king of the Jews. Remember, we talked about what it meant to be the son of David uh, a number of weeks ago. We talked about the number of prophecies that had been laid out that had really set the foundation for this eternal king that would come from the line of David. Remember that David wanted to build a house for God, and Nathan said, hey, do as you know, it is on your heart. Nathan goes home, and God says, what are you doing talking out of turn like that? I mean, that's not what God said, but you know, pretty much that was the point. He's like, that you gave the wrong message. You gave the wrong, never good for the prophet to give a message on behalf of God, which is not a message from God. And so Nathan goes back and he says, hey, listen, you know, I got good news and bad news. Um, bad news is there's too much blood on your hands to build a temple. Good news, God's going to build you an everlasting, eternal house. And um, this is like expressed throughout various uh, Old Testament books, especially the minor prophets and also in the major prophets. So, so Jesus, you know, he affirms it. You know, that accusation was in fact true. Later on, what we're going to see is this was the um, accusation that was inscribed on a piece of wood that, would, that was ultimately nailed to the top of the cross that said, um, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And you know the religious leaders were perturbed by this because they said, he's not the King of the Jews. We told you he said he was the King of the Jews. And so, so you know, Pilate asked the question. Jesus gives the answer. Um, there are more accusations that the religious leaders begin to heap up against Jesus. And Jesus says absolutely nothing, which stuns Pilate because Pilate is accustomed to people defending themselves. And so he asks a second question. He, he says, have you no answer to make? And there was just simply silence from Jesus. Now we know um, that there was a, a deeper interrogation that Pilate gave to Jesus in John chapter 18. You can go read that later yourself. There was a personal exchange that, that Pilate and Jesus had. But in this particular instance, as there was a crowd that was gathered, we'll talk about the crowd in just a second, Jesus, Jesus is silent. And by the way, he is silent because he's not really the one on trial. Everybody else is on trial. You know, Pilate wasn't the one who was in authority. Jesus was the one who was in authority. Pilate, Pilate wasn't the one who was ultimately going to have the power to end this individual's life. The power was in Jesus' hands himself. And so really, you know, you've got to flip the paradigm when you think about this situation. He was silent because not only was the sovereign will of God being played out step by step, but Jesus was, in fact, the one who really was in control. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, 7, by the way, you guys with me tonight still? Long day, you guys good? 
All right, Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By the way, topic for another time, but this is always a good reminder. When you're doing the right thing in the eyes of God, you never have to defend yourself. The Bible says in verse 6, now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. So there was uh, this tradition that, that Pilate had. We're not necessarily sure if this was just a typical Roman tradition, but for sure, Pilate was the consummate politician, which means Pilate was able to, and, and desiring to, use every situation as much as he could to leverage every situation to manipulate as many people as possible for his own purpose. So, you know, some might say, oh, you know, Pilate, what a really nice guy. He was so merciful. He, you know, released a prisoner. No, that, that was not Pilate being a nice guy. That was Pilate just manipulating people. And so, you know, there was a crowd that had gathered on this day. You know, sometimes when we're talking about the triumphal entry, we have a, a tendency to equate that crowd with this crowd. And, you know, that may be true. And it makes for really good preaching because we can talk about the fickleness of people. We're on the one hand... They're saying, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then not many days later, on the other hand, this, this fickle people have turned tail 180 degrees, and now they're saying crucify him. And that, of course, is a possibility. Um, more likely is the fact that there was a group of people that had already gathered because they knew this was the tradition that Pilate had to release an individual, and they really came with a desire to have Barabbas released. Because Barabbas for them was not just some hardened criminal, he was a, a political hero. What Barabbas was doing in, in insurrection and fighting for the rights of the Jewish, Jewish people and trying to overthrow the, you know, the burden of um, Roman control, all of this was perceived in a favorable light by the Jewish people. And so most likely, this crowd had gathered. It wasn't really a crowd that the Sanhedrin had created themselves or, you know, they had gotten a bunch of people that they wanted together so that they could ultimately get Jesus crucified. That was probably not the case because they didn't have time to do this. This was early in the morning, between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. And so there was probably this group of people that had gathered because they wanted this particular person Released, And so this was the tradition that, that, that a Pilate had. And the Bible says in verse 8, And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And so probably saying this like in a, you know, a mocking, condescending way, like I said, this group of people gathered together and they began to you know, ask Pilate to do ultimately what they wanted. And Pilate does something I think that, you know, we're going to see later that he almost puts this decision in the hands of the people, which, you know, was a really interesting thing for the governor of Judea to do. He maybe expected that they would say that, you know, Jesus was the one that needed to be released because as he had interrogated Jesus, 
as he had heard, as you know, by reading the other gospel accounts that his wife had said to him, I had a dream about this guy, have nothing to do with him. As he talked to Jesus and as he had the opportunity to converse with Jesus about issues like truth, as Pilate was an individual who was, you know, very savvy and knew a criminal when he saw one, he probably thought that the people would have said, release Jesus. And I do believe that he was surprised when that wasn't their desire. But he knew, because he was savvy, he knew exactly why it was that the religious people desired Jesus to be killed. The Bible says in verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But I think that particular verse has always stood out to me, you know, because we, we think, man, what was really going through the minds of the religious leaders, to be so blind to the Messiah and the fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus demonstrated in such an undeniable way that even somebody like Nicodemus would come to him and say, Rabbi, listen, we know that a, a man can't do these things unless God is with him. You know, we, we recognize that it must be that by God you do these miracles. And yet, there seemed to be such a blindness over the religious leadership. And, and I appreciate this particular verse because it really does get to the core. Why was it that the religious leaders were so driven to hand Jesus over to Pilate? Well, the reason was they were jealous of him. They were envious. They did not like the influence and the sway that Jesus had over the people because they used to be the ones who were in control and Jesus challenged their power structure. Like when you think of speaking to power, I mean you could like make a reverse argument here because Jesus is ultimate power, but when you think of someone speaking to power, man, that's what Jesus did. He, he spoke to the power structure of the day that had manipulated people and controlled people and, listen, that were supposed to be a bridge between the people and God. That's what the religious leaders were intended to be by God. That's what the purpose of the high priest and, and the, you know, the, the tribe of Levi, that's what the intention was, that they would be bringing the people to God and bringing God to the people, and yet they did the exact opposite. And so, you know, they were, it was envy, it was covetousness that was in their hearts. I want to just like peel off a little bit and say this, guard your heart from envy. You know, guard your heart from envy. You say, well, what is envy? Envy is when you want, covetousness, covetousness is when you want something that somebody else has for yourself. Wanting something that somebody has that's been given by God to them, but not to you. Covetousness is wanting that. And then envy is taking a step further and is actually hating or despising that person because they have what you wish you had. I mean, that, that, is, a, that is a dangerous place to be. Paul describes covetousness as idolatry. It's placing things uh, on your heart in a position or a place that is really reserved for God alone. And, you know, the author to the book of Hebrews addresses covetousness, and he basically says this, hey, we don't have to covet anything because God has given himself to us. He himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
And so what other thing do we really need to be pining after in this life? God, help us, you know, especially as we talk about loving each other in the body of Christ. I think we're able to really love each other when we're just simply satisfied with what God has chosen to give to us. So there was that envy. The Bible says in verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? You can see he's, he is somewhat resistant. And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil is he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Listen, Pilate's in this, Pilate is at a cross, uh, crossroads. He is at a crossroads right now. He recognizes that Jesus is innocent, and he has an opportunity to do the right thing, but the Bible says in verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So here at this intersection, this opportunity, you know, he asks the right question to the people, what shall I do with the man Uh, that you call the king of the Jews, he asked them the right question, but he should have really been asking it to himself. I think it's an appropriate question for us to ask tonight. What have you done with the one who is called the king of the Jews? What have you done personally with him? What do you believe about him? Do you believe, as the Bible says, that he's the Messiah, that he's the son of God? Do you believe, as the Bible says, that he was crucified and that on the third day he rose again from the dead, do you believe that tonight? Do you believe tonight that he is the way to eternal life? And if you really want to know the Father, there's no other way to know the Father but through faith in the Son. Do you believe that tonight? Because listen, yeah. Thanks, Sonia. Because it's not, it's not enough, it's not enough to know what other people think about Jesus. You have to come to a conclusion yourself about who he is. And I don't just mean from a historical perspective. And I can say tonight, well, you need to choose to believe. And, and the word believe is loaded because when I say believe, am I just talking about, well, you, all you have to do is acknowledge that he's a historical figure and, you know, he's one of the great religious leaders like, like Buddha or Muhammad or Zoroaster or, you know, you pick the flavor of the day. And as long as you believe in that regard, then that's all he really requires. And, and that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says to believe is to receive him by faith, to acknowledge that he is everything that he is claimed to be, and he did do everything the Bible says that he did. That he was crucified on the cross in a substitutionary way. That he hung in our place, and that he took the penalty for our sins that we deserve to take ourselves. And that through faith in him, as we believe in his crucifixion and resurrection, we can be reunited with God, that our sin issue is dealt with and resolved because you know, none of us by our own works are ever gonna merit the favor of God. None of us are good enough. There's only one who is good and that is, is God. There's only one who is righteous and that is his son. And when we put our faith in him and his life and what he did, Uh, We are, like I said, reunited to God and given the gift of everlasting life, which begins the day that you trust in Jesus Christ. Your heart is invaded by heaven itself. Have you believed tonight? Have you really trusted tonight? Is there the evidence of transformation 
in your life, the evidence of the power of God's Holy Spirit causing you to be born again, the truth is this, your judgment, your personal judgment of Jesus Christ is going to determine your eternal judgment. What you do with Jesus is going to impact your life for all of eternity. Pilate does the worst thing. He does the worst thing, wishing to satisfy the crowd, the Bible says. I mean, Pilate, and you know, another gospel account says that he washed his hands of the matter. And you can't wash your hands of Jesus Christ. You can't just turn your back on him. You can't walk away from him. And that's what Pilate tried to do. He tried to make a decision, ultimately, that was just satisfying or placating the people. Hey, tonight, make your decision not to please other people, but to please the Lord. And so, and so he has him scourged. By the way, um, let me just talk about scourging for a second. There are three tables. I can't see them right now. Let me just stand up. There are three tables right here. And um, what, you, what you see on these tables, you see a crown of thorns. We'll talk about that in a second. And you see scourging whips. And these, these whips are, um, I would say, probably the, the, the closest thing that we know of to what a scourging whip historically would have been just through archaeological studies and things like that. I would encourage you to come forward and take a look at them um, after we have our time of prayer. But the scourging process was a process that was used to elicit um, a confession from someone who was accused of committing a crime. Most people did not survive the scourging. The, The scourging process was so bad that um, Roman citizens were by law not allowed to be scourged. But what they would do, and I'll just go over this briefly tonight, we're not gonna get into the depths of the details, but what they would have done to Jesus is they would have tied his hands together with a a leather strap, they would have uh, tied that, tied the leather strap to a post, they would have pulled his clothes off and they would have taken these scourging whips Um, three strands, six strands, nine strands, and 12 strands, and then they would have, they would have beat him with them. Um, They are a piece of wood that has connected, like I said to it, uh, three straps, or six, or nine, or 12 straps of leather. At the end, there were lead balls, and embedded in the lead balls were pieces of iron, and glass, and shards of bone. And what the Roman torturers were due, and by the way, this was a game for them. If you do go with us to Israel in March, we'll stand on the stones where the praetorium, stones that the praetorium actually had in them 2,000 years ago, and there are games that are carved into the stones that the soldiers would have played while they were torturing somebody. And they would have, they would have taken these um, scourging whips, and they would have Two of them would have been on either side and they would have taken turns lashing the criminal with the whips. The the ends of the whips, like I said, have um, balls of lead. That would have beaten down, softened the tissue. Um, It would have uh, kind of pulverized it in a way. And then when they pulled those those, um, balls of lead away, the glass and the bone and the iron would have begun to lacerate the skin. And, you know, typically um, for the Jews, it was uh, 40 minus 1 or 39 lashes. There were no limits to the lashes that the Romans would apply. 
So, you know, his, history and archaeology tells us that oftentimes by the end of a scourging, um, a person's whole body on the back, uh, around the sides, because they would, have, they would have taken the whips and they would have um, swung them in a way where the lead balls would have come over the sides of the rib cage, and then they would have pulled, ripping away the flesh on the rib cage. So from the middle of the buttocks all the way up to the top of the neck, what would have happened is the whole back and side of the person being tortured would have been flayed away so that there was open muscle and open veins and open arteries. Um, and every time they applied the whip, they were expecting a confession to be made. Um, as confessions were made, oftentimes what they would do is they would lessen the intensity of um, the abuse. And the situation with Jesus was there was no confession to be made. And so there was no lessening of the abuse that he took. So by the time he was done with the scourging, he literally would have been just bleeding blood into the open air, and he would have almost been unrecognizable. Remember, at this point, his face would have been swollen from the beating that he endured um, on the evening before. And if you read John's gospel account after the scourging, Pilate had Jesus brought to the people again, probably thinking that their lust for his blood would have been satisfied just by the scourging, and he said these words. He said, behold the man. And I think there was a sense of um, even Pilate being overwhelmed, knowing that he was innocent, probably hearing that there was no confession that he had made. So not only did he not make a confession when he was being accused by the religious leaders, and Pilate could see the abuse that he took already from that, but even after the scourging, the soldiers came back and said he had nothing to say. There wasn't even a confession that he made. And so maybe from Pilate's perspective, when he said, behold, the man, it was almost as if, have you ever seen a man like this? Have you ever seen a man like this? Have you ever seen a man with, with such strength and with such integrity um, as he's standing here before us all, almost as if he is absolutely innocent? There probably was still a question in Pilate's mind. But the suffering of Jesus wasn't done with the scourging. The Bible says in verse 16, after the scourging came even more humiliation, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. This would have been, um, maybe your Bible says cohort, uh, that is one-tenth of a legion, which would have been 600 people. There's some difference of opinion. We're talking about at least 300 to 600 soldiers. And they clothed them in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, um, you know, maybe small thorns, but there were particular reeds that grew along the Jordan River, and the thorns of those reeds would have been two to three inches long, similar to the crown of thorns that's here on the center table. And they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with the reed, so as the crown of thorns sat down on his, his, the top of his head, the crown of his head, they beat that down with the reed, um, lacerating in a further way his forehead and, and his head, and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him in, of the purple cloak that was certainly soaked with blood, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So this process that Jesus went through was not just um, ultimately, of course, you know, being crucified, it wasn't just the most painful way 
of executing capital punishment, but it was also the most humiliating way. I mean, it was the most extreme way of shaming someone. And the Roman soldiers wanted to make sure the Jews understood this because they had great contempt for the Jewish people. I mean, from the perspective of the Roman soldier, here you have somebody who is proclaiming himself to be the king of the Jews, standing against the greatest empire of the world, and they were going to make a public spectacle of him. And so that's what they did. This whole process was, was an expression of their contempt and their disdain for the Jewish people, all represented in the person of Christ. Maybe even a fulfillment of what the high priest had said when Jesus was there in the court of Caiaphas. It's expedient for one to suffer for the whole nation, which was exactly what was happening on this morning. You know, you read this story, and there can be a tendency to be kind of, you know, overwhelmed with, with guilt. But remember, like, this is the greatest expression of God's love. It's kind of counterintuitive to us because, you know, we read this and it's just pain and agony and anguish. And yet at the same time, we have to remember that as we're going to see in the scriptures, God delivered up his own son for us. It wasn't just that we can lay the blame at the feet of the Jewish people or we can say how ungodly the Romans were. Ultimately, this was the fulfillment of the plan of God. It was the purpose of the Father to deliver up the Son to suffer on our behalf, to be humiliated. In fact, I love the way Paul puts it in Philippians, uh, one of the greatest sections of Scripture in all of the Bible, talking about Jesus and how he humbled himself and how the mind that was in him with respect to thinking of others above himself should also be in us. And he explains, he explains the mind of Christ when he says, who though he was in the form of God did not counted equality with, did not count, excuse me, equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So he's just like, Paul is like setting the framework. Think of him as high as you possibly can. Because even when it came to the issue of equality with God, that wasn't something just to be grasped at. That wasn't irrelevant. That wasn't an idea that was just beyond his scope. No, the truth is he was absolutely and is absolutely equal with God. I mean, a different person of the triune Godhead, but the same essence. And so Paul says you start there, and then you begin the descent, the condescension of Christ, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, like, we're not going to get into the exegesis of this, but, like, you've got to see that Paul is taking steps down, significant steps. I mean, we're talking about the glory and the adulation of, of angels, the seraphim, holy, holy, holy. Tony was leading this, us in that song tonight. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole host of heaven is proclaiming his greatness and his holiness and then we have this, this beautiful picture of his willingness to take steps down, to condescend, right, to, to transcend the contrast between heaven and earth to the extent where he took on the form of a servant. He came in the likeness of men. And not only that, not only in the incarnation, not only taking on a human form, constraining himself, the second person of the triune Godhead constraining himself in human form. Like for us sometimes, because you know we're children of the enlightenment, we think, well, well, that's such a great thing. Well, not if you're God. Not if you're God. 
That's not a step up. That is a step down. And then not only does he take that step down, but he is obedient to the point of death. I mean, this is like, I mean, this is kind of like a a reverse apex here. Paul's going down, but the truth is God's love is going up. And he says the most extreme thing, even the death of the cross. How low did he go for you so that you could experience an, an ascension and you could be up, like Paul says, seated in the heavenly places in Christ? How low did he go? He himself was crucified. The Bible says in verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming out from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So Jesus would have, um, one of two ways, he would have either gone from the Praetorium, the Antonia Fortress, northwest side of the Temple Mount, um, and he either would have gone you know, out to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the traditional site of Golgotha um, and the empty tomb, or he would have gone up to the Way of the Cross, um, which from my point of view, is probably the route that he took. He would have started in the Praetorium, made his way up through the Damascus Gate, out the Damascus Gate, um, and to the quarry where there was a cliff, and the side of the cliff looked like a skull. As he was on his way, he was carrying this 100-pound crossbeam, which he was unable to carry any longer. And so four soldiers around Jesus, one in front with a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, and one of the soldiers would have taken his spear, laid it on somebody. The somebody was Simon of Cyrene, which he was from modern-day Tripoli. He was a a Libyan, probably, you know, a Jew that was coming to worship but living in a foreign country. And as he was present there, maybe getting, gathering things for that Passover meal, he was tapped by this Roman soldier, brought into the circle, and then compelled to carry that 100-pound crossbeam out the Damascus Gate to the place where Christ was crucified. Mark here uh, names Alexander and Rufus. By the way, there's a Simon mentioned in Acts chapter 13, and Alexander and Rufus are mentioned later on um, in the New Testament. And so probably what has happened here historically is Simon has put his faith in Christ. This has been a life-transforming moment. And then his sons also became part of the early church and maybe leaders. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And so there was a group of women that had a ministry of mercy, and they would go to the place where the Romans crucified people, and they would supply um, this mixture of wine with myrrh, which was kind of like a sedative, and they would dip it a sponge and place it on the lips of the people being crucified to kind of deaden the pain. He did not take it because he experienced the full weight of the crucifixion for us. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. So um, it was common for a person being crucified to be stripped down completely. Some say there would have been maybe a loincloth. Others say that you know, every person crucified would have been stripped naked um, so that the fullness of their shame could be experienced. Those soldiers that ultimately nailed the arms and the feet to the cross would have taken the garments, and that was part of the spoils for them. And it was the third hour, or 9 a.m., when they crucified him. 
and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. So presumably Barabbas would have been crucified in the middle, but Jesus was crucified in his stead. And two individuals that were probably part of the insurrection with Barabbas were crucified on, on either side. And so symbolically, of course, we understand that this signifies that he was, he was numbered with the transgressors. Um, even though he was innocent. I think it signifies that, that Jesus really stands between two decisions. You have to make a choice concerning Jesus Christ. The gospel demands a decision. You can't just turn your back on Jesus Christ because the cross compels you to say either yes for him or to say no to him. And understand tonight that that's the way that God sees it. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, you're either for God or you're at war with God. To be undecided is to be decided. You know, to, to pause on the decision is to say no to him. The Bible says in verse 29, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. We'll come back to that in a second. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So they said to him, he saved others, he cannot save himself. I would just say to you tonight, um, really what was happening was he would not save himself. It was not that he could not save himself, it was that he would not save himself. And he would not save himself so that you could be saved. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in his ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you tonight for just the extraordinary historical account. God, I, I just hesitate to, to call this a story because sometimes when we think of story, we think fiction or fable or fairy tale. And, and God, this is truth. This is historical truth. This is what you did for us. This is what makes this particular crucifixion so different from every other one because it was the life of the Son. It was the plan of the Father. God, it was the ultimate expression and demonstration of your love for us. Father, that is relentless and it is reckless in, in this regard that you... Lord Jesus, did not even consider yourself. There was no boundary that you weren't willing to cross. There was no price that you were unwilling to pay. There was no sacrifice that you were unwilling to make. But you did it all. And you did it all for us. And tonight as we, as we read this story, we just... We just want to say once again, thank you. Oh, we, we rest. We rest tonight in your grace. We rest tonight in what you've done and, 
And we bring our, our failures and our struggles and our inadequacies and in all the ways that we fall short time after time. And we tonight can just say thank you. Thank you that the, the handwriting of the law that detailed our failure was nailed to the cross. Thank you that our debt has been paid in full. Thank you that we've been restored and reconciled and and that we stand now forgiven and cleansed and healed and at one with you. You have atoned. You've made atonement. We've been set free. We've been declared righteous. The sacrifice has been made and there's nothing that we can add to it. Thank you that we don't have to play church. Thank you that we don't have to follow a a list of rules that somebody else has made. Thank you that this faith is not, we're not piggybacking off of somebody else's faith, but it's our own. It's our own. And there are 2,000 years of faith decisions that, that we're a part of a great cloud of witnesses. We thank you, Father, for the faith community that you've privileged us to be a part of. And and tonight we just ask for a renewing work of your spirit in our lives. As our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed tonight, listen, I'm, I'm compelled. I'm just compelled considering the content of what we've considered tonight to ask you, have you made a decision yourself to follow Jesus? It's, it's not enough to know people that know him. And you can't just choose not to choose. You can't wash your hands of him. You can't just postpone the decision and think that somehow that gives you a pass. You have to choose based on what God has revealed to you. And tonight... Tonight, he's revealed who his son is and what his son has done. And so this evening, if you've never taken that step of faith and trusted in Christ personally, we want to give you an opportunity to make that decision tonight. Tonight is, tonight is the, the night for you to choose, the appointed moment that God has given. And so tonight, if this is you and you want to once and for all declare Christ is your Savior and is your Lord. Tonight you want to believe in who he said he was and what the Bible says that he did. Tonight you want to be restored in right relationship with God. You want what's been broken to be mended. You want the wall torn down. You want to be at one with him and have the assurance of not only everlasting life to come, but heavenly life now. Tonight, if this is you, I want to just inc- I want to lead you in a prayer tonight that can begin your journey with God right here and right now. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. Our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed. Just stretch your hand up high, and in the raising of your hand, you're just saying, "Man, Derek, that's me. I I want I want God in my life. I want to believe in Jesus. I want that personal relationship." And Father, we thank you. We're just grateful tonight that you love us, Lord. And 
pray, Father, just a, a blessing over your people this evening, a blessing of peace and rest tonight, that there, every heart, every soul would be at rest in you, that tonight every heart and every soul would take up the yoke of Christ, which is easy, and his burden, which is light. God, unburden the burdened souls right now. Father, would you pour out supernatural peace and where there's been anxiety and stress and, and internal tumult, God, pour out your supernatural peace. Father, where there's been fear, I pray that you would rise up within your sons and daughters tonight and fill their hearts with courage and faith. God, where, there, where there's been a cloud of confusion that has descended and that has caused a blindness or even a deception, I pray tonight that you would rend that veil, that you would cause your light to evaporate that cloud and God, you would bring clarity. You would be, bring clarity and spiritual sight once again. Father, I pray tonight where there has been discord and broken relationship that you would bring healing that you would take what is broken and you would mend it and make it right. This evening as we close in a song of worship, we pray, Father, that, that you would be blessed and pleased as your children express their worship and gratitude for all that you've done through the giving of your sons.